Section 18 of The Golden Web by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter 18 An Expensive Key. It was three o'clock in the morning when Dean softly opened the door of his bedroom in the Hotel Universal and looked up and down the side corridor. There was no one in sight, no sound of anyone passing in the main corridor a few yards away. For several moments he stood and listened intently. Then he moved a few yards to the left and stopped opposite another door. He scrutinized the number, 27. It was the number he sought. He felt in his pocket for the keys, which he had collected from various sources. One by one he tried them in the lock, in vain. Not one fitted. He tried the handle of the door softly. There was no doubt about it. The door was securely fastened. He recognized at once the failure of his first attempt and returned to his room. His bed was as yet undisturbed. He had not even changed the tweed traveling suit in which he had journeyed up from Rankey. It was a fool's errand, after all, he thought, on which he had come. Yet somehow or other, after his conversation with Ruby Sinclair, after he had realized how thorough her search would indeed be, how convinced she was that somewhere amongst the effects of the dead man lay the secret of wealth, he had realized more completely than ever before the danger in which he stood. Granted, even, that no suspicion of complicity with Rowan attached to him, his financial ruin would be none the less complete if that paper should ever come into the hands of people who understood its worth. Never had the situation seemed so clear, so dangerous, as that night after he had walked home with the girl and turned his face again toward the sea. Something in the very desolation of the marshes seemed to help thought, perhaps by the absence of any distracting object. There was a sense of breath about the place. As he walked, with only the murmur of the sea in his ears, he saw things clearly. He saw himself in the prime of life, suddenly flung from the place to which he had climbed, flung down to join all those poor millions of strugglers whose first foot had yet to be planted upon the first rung of the great ladder. He was too old to begin at the beginning. There was no place for him down amongst those on whom failure had already placed her mark. He could not have borne it. To be stripped of his riches, his name, the position of which he was without a doubt proud, to suffer the breaking of his engagement, the downfall of all his ambitions. The very thought of it was intolerable. And in the deep silence of that night, as he listened to the gurgling of the sea below, and the faint movement of the wind across the level land, he realized, with a sudden pain at his heart, the danger in which he stood. In three days the girl would be there. Scotland Yard would send one of its myrmidons with her. She would have free access to all the dead man's belongings. She would take with her a lawyer. Every scrap of paper the man had possessed, every trifling object, would have its value. The little Anna gold mine was world famous. There would be no chance of their overlooking a single document bearing such a name. Before he had reached this strange dwelling place, he had come to a resolution. Early next morning, stopping only to leave a note telling the girl where to find him when she arrived in London, he was off by the early train. By means of a little diplomacy, he had succeeded in gaining a room within a few doors of the one 
in which Sinclair had been killed. Only a few feet of wall separated him from the room in which somewhere or other was to be found the paper he coveted. Well, his first attempt had been a failure. He knew quite well that the place was paraded by night watchmen, and that any attempt to gain an entrance into the room by orthodox means would result in prompt discovery. There was nothing to be done until the morrow. He threw himself upon the bed and tried to sleep. Waking with the first gleam of daylight, he took off his clothes, bathed, and made a leisurely toilet. Then he rang for the valet de chambre. The man was a pleasant-faced, loquacious sort of fellow. Dean talked to him for a while, and then made his effort. Wasn't it upon this floor, he asked, that a murder took place lately? The valet looked around him for a moment before answering. Yes, sir, he replied, in the very next room. We are not allowed to talk about it more than we can help. Dean nodded. All the time he was watching the man, wondering how far he dared go. Look here, he said. You seem to be an honest fellow. I suppose you'd have no objection to bettering yourself in life. No objection in the slightest, sir, the man answered. I'm on the staff of a newspaper, Dean said slowly, and my people are particularly anxious that I should inspect the interior of the room in which that murder was committed. Your people downstairs have absolutely refused to allow me to do anything of the sort. I have taken this room in the hope of being able to get in there. Do you think there is any chance for me? I should say not, sir, the man answered. The door is locked, and Mr. Hartshorn himself, the manager, has taken the key. There isn't such a thing as a duplicate, I suppose, Dean asked. Not that I know of, sir, the man answered. You couldn't suggest any means by which I could enter the room, even if it were an affair of, say, fifty pounds to you? Dean asked calmly. The man started. Fifty pounds was a great deal of money. On the other hand, the fifty pounds would take some earning. I'm afraid I can't, sir, he said. There is no duplicate key that I know of, and in any case, I dare not run the risk. Fifty pounds is not enough, perhaps, Dean said. Money is no particular object to me. If you said that you thought you could provide me with a key for a hundred pounds, I would willingly pay it. I'm afraid not, sir, the man answered, turning as though to leave the room. Two hundred pounds, Dean said. It isn't a matter of money, sir, the man declared. I daren't do it. I should be certain to be found out, and I should be sent away without a character. I will take you into my service, Dean said. The man shook his head. Thank you, sir, he said. My character is worth a good deal to me. I think I'll keep out of this, if you don't mind. Dean called him back imperatively. Let us understand one another, he said, drawing something from his pocket. Are you going down to the manager to tell him what I have told you? The man hesitated. Dean held out a five-pound note. There is no reason for you to do so, you know, Dean said, just as there is no reason why you should not accept this tip. The valet hesitated and finally accepted the five-pound note which Dean was holding out. I am sure I don't know why I should take it, sir, he said, but there is no reason, after all, why I should say anything of what you have been talking about downstairs. Dean sat in his chair waiting. There was a knock at the door, and a chambermaid entered, to retire at once in confusion. Dean looked at her curiously. Something in her figure, and her start, had seemed familiar to him. He got up and rang the bell. In a moment or two, a waiter appeared. He was obviously a German, dark and sallow. 
He spoke in perfect English, and there was a gleam of cupidity in his eyes which to Dean seemed hopeful. "'Bring me some tea at once,' he ordered. "'Nothing to eat.' The man departed and reappeared in a few minutes. "'Anything else, sir?' he asked, after he had set down the tray. Dean did not answer him directly. "'By the way,' he said finally, "'wasn't there a murder committed in one of these rooms?' "'It was next door, sir,' the man answered. "'The room is locked up?' Dean asked. "'Yes, sir.' "'That's a pity,' Dean remarked. "'Do you know who has the key? "'I should very much like to just have a look around.' The waiter shook his head. "'The key is downstairs in Mr. Hartshorn's office, sir, "'and we have no duplicate here. "'The police who came, "'they desired that no one should enter the room "'until they had removed the effects to Scotland Yard.' "'So I was told downstairs,' Dean remarked. "'Do you suppose,' he continued, "'that it would be possible to get hold of a duplicate key?' I should very much like to see the interior of that room, if possible to take a photograph of it for my newspaper. I'm willing to pay. The waiter shook his head reluctantly. I do not think that there is a duplicate key, he said, with his eyes fixed upon Dean's right hand. Perhaps you could make inquiries, Dean suggested smoothly. I want to get a photograph of the inside of the room for my people, if possible. It would be worth quite a great deal of money. The man was impressed. I will go away and see, he said slowly. Keep this to yourself, Dean ordered. I don't want it all over the hotel. The man made a sign of assent and withdrew. Dean rang for the chambermaid. Once, twice, three times he rang without response. Then a middle-aged person came shuffling in. Very much out of breath, Dean gave her some trivial order. By the way, he asked, are you the chambermaid who waits on this room? No, she answered with some hesitation. The regular chambermaid is down at her breakfast. Dean nodded. Will you tell her, he asked, that I should like to see her as soon as she is up? I want to see about some laundry, he added. The woman disappeared. Dean was left alone once more. He unpacked some books and made himself comfortable in an easy chair. He was not even able to descend to the smoking room. Mr. Sterling Dean, it was well known, had left town for Scotland. Mr. B. Stocks, who had arrived at the hotel the night before and taken this room, was a person who had particular reasons for not desiring to be seen even in the precincts of the hotel. Dean settled himself down to read, a somewhat difficult task. By the time he had smoked several cigarettes, there was a soft tap at the door and the waiter reappeared. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' he said. Go ahead, Dean answered. I have found a key in the service room, which I think would open number 27. Dean nodded. Very well, he said. Let me have the use of it tonight, and I will give you twenty pounds. The man moistened his lips with his tongue. Twenty pounds was a wonderful sum, but... There's a good deal of risk about it, sir, the man said slowly, and I have to divide with the night porter, who told me where to find this key. Very well, Dean answered. I will give you twenty pounds each, no more. The man placed the key silently in his hands, and Dean counted out eight five-pound notes. If I were you, sir, he said, if you want to be alone in the room and be sure of no one seeing you, I should use it between four and five tomorrow morning. Everyone is off duty then, except the night porter. Dean nodded. By the way, he said, 
Do you know anything about the chambermaid on this floor, the young slim one? The waiter shook his head. She has only just come. Do you know her name? Dean asked. The man smiled. It is always the same, he answered. Always Mary. She would not be allowed in 27, Dean asked. She would not be likely to be there to clean it out or anything of that sort. The man shook his head again. No one is allowed to enter it, he said. No one has been in but the detectives and lawyers. Dean dismissed the man and settled down once more to his reading. He found it difficult, however, to concentrate his thoughts. The key was on the chair by his side. It was all he could do to restrain himself from stealing down the corridor and commencing his search. End of section 18